Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Anima Anankumar. Anima is the Bren Professor at Caltech in the CMS department. And as of a couple of months ago, the Director of Machine Learning Research at NVIDIA. Uh, as well as being a good friend of the show, you can hear her previous conversation at Twimble Talk 142. Anima, welcome back to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thanks a lot, Sam. It's great to be back. Uh, the past few months have been so exciting and so happy to see you do this uh, show reviewing the year. It is going to be a fun conversation, I am sure. I am sure. Before we get too far in, maybe you can kind of share a little bit about what you're up to at NVIDIA. Yeah, it's been an exciting couple of months at NVIDIA as we have released so many new frameworks and we have many new researchers and uh, you know engineers and others join us and uh, my role is director of machine learning research there and that means i want to focus on core algorithmic problems you know how do we optimize neural networks in a principled way or generalize think about reinforcement learning generative modeling so a broad class of machine learning questions but focusing on the core algorithms, analyzing them, you know, running careful scientific studies, and at the same time connecting with all the uh, really interesting applications uh, that we are seeing today. So we're also speaking right on the tail end of NeurIPS. Uh, NeurIPS being a new name for the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference, a new name which you helped uh, initiate. Maybe uh, can you maybe share a little bit about your experience at uh, NeurIPS this year, as well as uh, your thoughts on the name change? Yes, yes, Sam. Uh, you know, I'm so happy uh, to uh, see NeurIPS uh, take important stance on diversity and inclusion. You know, in addition to having technical advancements, this is so critical because I feel like we are at this cusp where we can either, you know, have a democratization of AI and have diversity and creativity from all the groups coming in, or we could have it closed off to only a certain kind of individuals, right? And the latter would be a sad uh, thing, uh, you know, for the world and for AI. And so I'm happy this year that there was so much focus you know, not only on diversity and inclusion, but also on societal impacts, I know AI fairness, ethics, and we have people coming from those expertise, you know, with those expertise into the conference. And that just makes it such an amazing place. Uh, uh, you know, I think it's changed for the better. There is so much awareness now about the issues affecting the underrepresented communities and uh, you know more allies coming to these diversity events right it's not uh, an event that's only for those groups but it's more of understanding the issues those groups you know face and how the rest of the community can uh, help uh, bring in people uh, from diverse backgrounds and to me the name change um, the whole 
you know, experience was part of this push for diversity and inclusion, you know, when we saw last year, uh, there was, you know, many issues where the name was used as a way to make fun and make, you know, have jokes that uh, bordered on sexual harassment, uh, that is a problem. And to me, yes, you know, some people may argue, oh, it's just a name or it's just a joke, right? But uh, there are deeper issues that this uh, name change uh, helped us explore. I mean, I was personally very surprised at the amount of trolling I received when I spoke up about it. And that's why so many women cannot speak up about it because they feel threatened. And so there are broader issues of how do we make this a safe and an inclusive environment for everybody. And I'm so happy that there are so many male allies, you know, who strive to understand the issues better. You know, they kept asking me throughout this conference, how do we make this better for everybody? What can I do? How do I help? Right. And that's why this has been just a unique experience. You know, I have never experienced a conference like this before. Yeah, it was a, uh... It was a really amazing uh, conference for me as well uh, on a couple of levels. First, I, I think there's been kind of a uh, a blooming of these uh, different interest groups uh, at the conference. So Women in Machine Learning has been uh, around for, for quite some time and has uh, kind of met in conjunction with, with the conference. Uh, but last year, for the first time, uh, I attended the uh, the Black and AI workshop, which was uh, the first time for that workshop, the second time this year. Uh, this year, uh, there was added uh, uh, Latinx in AI, um, uh, as well as uh, several others. I would add queer in AI. And, uh, you know, that's uh, there was also the town hall on diversity and inclusion, where all these groups came together and discussed how there were unique problems for each groups, but also common ones, right? And then there is the whole issue of intersectionality, that a person may not just belong to one group, but several groups. And how do we, you know, think about these issues? And for a technical community, so much of this is new. And we are having experts from other areas, you know, really educate us on these issues. Yeah, what I thought was was really interesting was the way, at least in the, the Black and AI workshop, uh, both the the technical issues as well as the these intersectionality issues were all kind of weaved together. I don't know. It just you know as uh, as an African American in technology, I'm often the only person in the room. You know, for much of my career, and to you know be in a room where um, you know there are so many uh, so many not only African Americans but you know Africans and uh, Black folks from all over the world talking about cutting edge. Uh, machine learning and AI, uh, as well as the, the broader issues, you know, surrounding not just our communities, but other communities is, you know, I left really inspired. Um, and then beyond that, to see in the broader NeurIPS conference, uh, the extent to which, you know, some of these issues like uh, not just diversity and inclusion, but fairness, uh, accountability, transparency, yeah, they really took a kind of a top line, uh, played a top line role, I think, in this year's conference, unlike 
uh, last year, or I, I didn't notice it to the to that extent uh, last year. So it was very, very, very nice to see. I agree. Yes, and you know, I've been meeting lawyers, uh, policymakers, you know, uh, people with expertise uh, in ethics, uh, and you know, you couldn't imagine Neorips having these uh, kind of people, you know, attend uh, a few years ago, and that's I think great for the field. Uh, so that was certainly some an important development for uh, 2018. Uh, and so maybe we can use that as a, a jumping off point to talk about uh, some of the things on the research side that you uh, you are most that most caught your interest in the in the past year. Right, Sam. Um, you know, there have been a lot of developments. So I'll just pick a few doesn't mean that you know, that the others are not important. There is just so vast, right? And that's what's uh, exciting to be an AI researcher today because we have uh, so many domains and so many new uh, uh, kind of perspectives coming into AI. So some of the highlights personally for me, uh, one paper I would pick is this video-to-video synthesis uh, that appeared here at NeurIPS. Uh, with a group of NVIDIA researchers. Um, and what's uh, really novel here is uh, how to take this idea of image-to-image synthesis to videos, right? So over the past few years, uh, synthesizing images through GANs has been very popular. And then the next step was, if you already have an image, can you transform it in a certain way to output another image, right? Like the idea of cycle GANs and uh, other frameworks to do that well. Uh, But when you think about the videos, this is much more challenging because you have to maintain temporal coherence and you have to generate it for that whole length of time in a nice smooth manner. And so there were many new advances in this paper Uh, The main one I would call out is the spatio-temporal adversarial objectives. So it's not just the space, it's not just the time, but the two have to come together. And this achieves good quality synthesis as well as coherence. So you need to think of these multiple objectives being achieved here. And they show that it's possible to generate 2K resolution videos of street scenes up to 30 seconds long using uh, only the input semantic segmentation maps. And these uh, segmentation maps were obtained from a renderer, right? So the idea is now you can think that, uh, you know, you only get very quick, simple inputs from a renderer, and then you can actually use the GAN or learned frameworks to generate uh, the output videos well. And so there's a lot of promise uh, in this area. Uh, Videos are always much harder than images in so many ways, and I'm happy to see this development. Mm. So in their approach, did they use, it sounded like you're saying they used uh, just multiple objectives as opposed to a second uh, adversary or critic? Were they like doing adversarial in multiple dimensions, time and and space, or did they somehow combine uh, those two objectives with the same adversary? Uh, It was a single adversary, but it's spatio-temporal objective. So you combine both of them together. You mentioned the something about a renderer. Can you elaborate on that? 
So in this case, the renderer was used only to get the semantic segmentation maps, right? Like, you know, what are the, uh, what is the area of the pixels that has the car? What is the area of the pixel that has the background, right? And then the whole filling in was done uh, using uh, the GAN framework. And you could think in future, you could have like a mix of renderer doing some of the uh, rendering task and then GAN helping it and kind of having a combined free system. Yeah, there's been so much interesting work happening in the that happened in the GAN space uh, this year. I remember uh, another one that... Uh, that was really interesting was the photorealistic images, I think also from NVIDIA researchers um, that really uh, pushed the bar very far for what these GAN, these generated images could look like. That's right. That's right. There have been progressive GANs. There has been the big GAN paper, right? Like how do we really push to very high resolution and ultra realistic images? And I think these are exciting uh, developments in applied uh, deep learning and uh, can be applied in a lot of uh, interesting areas. Do you see GANs being applied beyond the image domain to other types of information? I think, uh, you know, the idea of having a competitive optimization, right, at the core of it, that is the generator and discriminator, but you could think of other kinds of competition. Uh, that's applicable in so many problems. I mean, if you want robustness, you now have this competition. If you have multi-agent systems, you know, you, this framework would be applicable. So I would say at the core algorithmic side, yes, there are a lot of connections. So video to video synthesis, what else has caught your eye this year? Yeah. So on more the theoretical front, I will talk about some of the works we've been doing, uh, looking from a different perspective, right? So I, I just said I've been excited about GANs, and GANs are great for now generating these photorealistic images. But what about applications where it's not good, right? So, so what are applications where GAN is not that easy to use? And that's for semi-supervised learning and other frameworks where you need to use the generative process to help a supervised task. And in this case, uh, these are two separate systems. The GAN is separate from your convolutional neural network, which does the prediction. And it's very messy to try to combine both of them. Instead, we came up with a framework called Neural Rendering Model that tries to build a generative process right into your convolutional network rather than having a separate system. And its goal is not to generate good-looking images, but to ask what are the relevant uh, hidden variables and, you know, what is the relevant variability I need to capture in the data into this uh, convolutional network such that I can do semi-supervised learning well and I can also regularize my supervised learning in a nice way. So intuitively what it's doing is it's taking this convolutional network, which is a feed-forward system, and tries to reverse it. But then there is information loss when you're going through this network, so you're not able to perfectly reverse the system. 
Instead, what it's doing is it's saying, what is this uncertainty in reversing the process? Can I capture that well? Can I capture it across all the scales? And that gives me a measure of variability and uncertainty of each image. And we get state-of-the-art results, semi-supervised learning in this case. Uh, what are the evaluation criteria or what are the experiments that you're running and what are you comparing it to? Yes, uh, in semi-supervised learning, the task is you have both labeled and unlabeled data, right? And you can do that with benchmarks like C4, ImageNet, there are a few other data sets. And the key is you have very little amount of labeled data and a lot of unlabeled samples. Can you still get good accuracy? And that's why this is a much harder task. On a than, classifier. That's right. right. On, on the on the held out uh, test set, right? right? Uh, where you have to go and label that, but you only have few labeled examples in your training data set. Mm-hmm. How does the performance compare between supervised and semi-supervised? How, how, how much of the you know, gap have we been able to make up, you know, for not having the label training data? I would say this is still very much an unsolved problem. You know, the gap is significant, uh, especially when you think of ImageNet scale or on a large number of categories, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I, I think that's why a lot of new works uh, will be looking into this. Uh, you know, ultimately, in many other domains, we cannot have so many labeled examples and how do we use all the unlabeled data to help uh, the supervised task? I would say this is a hard problem to tackle. Mm-hmm. And so the, the this kind of reverse pass that you're describing that is trying to capture the variability in these images, how does that variability uh, lead to an um, lead to performance on the, the forward pass side? So I would say a primary challenge in machine learning is capturing uncertainty well, right? So if you look at the soft max at the very end of these convolutional networks, they don't do a good job and there are a series of works uh, saying why and try to fix that. Right? But instead, we are saying you don't try to capture the uncertainty only in the last layer. You want to capture it at all layers. Mm, okay. In each layer, uh, the processing is progressively losing information. And at what rate is this happening? For instance, you are distinguishing a cat and a dog. At which layer is it like more confusing than the others? Right. And this is a hard problem. And we are finding a way to automatically capture that across the scales. All right. So um, another interesting one. What's uh, what's next on your list? So another paper that's coming out of um, another paper that came out of my group at Caltech uh, has been on sinus GD, which looks at gradient compression. So, you know, right now when most of the training happens in a centralized way, right? Like uh, if there are devices like IoT devices, they send to the cloud, all the machine learning happens there, and then the data sends back. But you can think in the future, there'll be more of the demand for learning on the edge, especially if you have a lot of video streams, it is uh, becoming impractical to send everything to the cloud. You just don't have enough bandwidth to do that. 
And so in these settings, in low bandwidth distributed training settings, how do we do good machine learning? And in this case, you need to compress the gradients. So each device does its own pool of data, computes the gradients, uh, but instead of sending it in full precision, in our paper, what we asked was if you only send the sign of the gradient, right? So you, it appears you're losing a lot of information if you send only the sign. What is the impact? Can we study that? And what we did was to study both from the theoretical perspective as well as the empirical one and bridge this gap. And that's why I'm emphasizing this paper because we need more that bridge the theory and practice together. On the theoretical side, what we asked was, what is the rate of convergence on the training data compared to the full precision SGD, right? Uh, first of all, uh, you know, is it even clear that taking just the sign will converge? Will it go to zero training error? And it turns out, yes, you can get zero training error. And that's because intuitively, when the gradient is large, even just taking the sign means that you're descending in the right direction. Right. And, uh, and so we, in fact, also argue that uh, there are certain quantities like density of gradients and uh, smoothness and other properties under which we can expect it to have the same rate of convergence as the full precision SGD. And then we went to empirical studies and asked, okay, now can we see that happen? And we saw this converge, um, you know, very fast. And we also built uh, efficient compression algorithms so that really could increase the throughput and get the gains of compressed uh, gradients. And, and what we found was on the generalization side, we were getting almost similar accuracies as the full precision SGD, right? And that's why this interface between systems and machine learning is so hard to characterize because there can be a lot of free lunches. Uh, we are compressing gradients, but still maintaining accuracy. And we can also now ask theoretically why, you know, this is the case. And I would love to see more works like this that try to bridge the theory and practice and systems and machine learning. You mentioned building uh, uh, compression. I, I don't, don't recall if you said compression algorithm or, or some compression aspect of this. Can you elaborate on that? It, this, the sign is easy to, to get. What, what do you need to specifically do to, uh, uh, to kind of support this model? That's right, Sam. You know, I wasn't talking of a sophisticated compression algorithm. <laughs> okay. But more the details of, uh, you know, so if you now take the sign, how do you like kind of combine across all the parameters and uh, use the right CUDA primitives to make this efficient, right? Like you need to also worry about, uh, you know, when, uh, you, you know, in what, Form you're keeping this and how you're broadcasting it into the system. Okay, okay. So the, more the distributed components of it and how everything gets pulled together. That's right. I mean the systems details, but it's important to right. also be about that, right? And uh, many papers stop at uh, either doing the theoretical analysis or 
like asking what happens to accuracy, but not coming up with efficient implementations that also get the hardware gains. Mm, okay, great. So what's next? Yeah, so the next paper uh, is uh, one that's a negative result. Uh, so this is coming uh, again from my group at Caltech. And why I want to emphasize it is, you know, it's very hard to publish negative results, right? And people don't want <laughs> to talk about negative results. And, uh, you know, we tried for a long time to, of course, get a positive result. That wasn't our goal in the beginning to uh, write a negative results paper. And it also took me a lot of convincing uh, of my students to say, no, <laughs> you know, it's okay. We, you've done a lot of work and this is the honest results. Let's get this out there. And in this case, what we were trying to do was to combine model-based and model-free RL or uh, reinforcement learning. So, you know, the popular AlphaGo and other examples what you have is not just the deep Q network, but you also have the Monte Carlo tree search, right? So meaning you have this tree of all possible actions and you're growing this to a large tree depth. In the case of AlphaGo, this tree was of depth in the hundreds. And so, you know, these trees grow exponentially. So you can imagine this is a very, at the end, at the number of leaves is very huge. And this takes a lot of time. More importantly, this requires all these environmental interactions, right? Like you need to ask the environment what happens under each action and keep growing this tree. And in the real world, this would be impossible. Like we could never roll out to such a large tree depth. Mm -hmm. And if you're trying to simulate a more realistic real world example, you could possibly do this only for short tree depths. Right, because for the longer ones, there would be too high error propagation. So that's the other motivation to ask what we can do with short tree depths. So when we started out thinking about the paper, our idea was, you know, we will use a GAN-like framework to learn the dynamics and predict it for a few time steps. And uh, then like do tree search and DQN combinations and argue that this will give us a good result. That was our initial idea because then that's a motivation of like, oh, you can now take this to a more real, ultimately a realistic example where you can simulate. And instead of uh, interacting with the real environment, you do this in simulation. And we were really worried about the model mismatch between what's being simulated and the real world, right, and those issues. But as we went through it, it turned out to be a very different project. And that's where, you know, I encourage other researchers to also adapt, right? Like, you know, we may go with an original idea. And if that doesn't work out, there may be so many other interesting things you find uh, as you go through uh, the experiments. And in this case, what we found was for the class of Atari games, it was actually quite easy to simulate them. Um, yes, they are simple images, but we were still surprised in terms of forecasting up to like 10 time steps. You know, they did almost perfectly. Like you couldn't tell the real image from the uh, uh, generated one, uh, you know, visually, you couldn't tell them apart. And uh, so, OK, that was easy. So we thought the GAN part would be hard, but that was easy. And what was now 
surprising was uh, even with this perfect simulation, we were not able to get good results. So in fact, I'll take it back. In the first game, the Pong, which is a simple game, we got really good results. We got, uh, you know, we showed that with just half the number of samples, you could like beat the baseline DQN or the DDQN network. And so that's promising. Now we're like, okay, we'll scale up to more games and we will write the paper, right? But as we started, <laughs> and no, and so as we started uh, doing these experiments and it was performing worse than DDQN, it was performing worse than random policy. And we are like, okay, what's going on? You know, like, is there a bug? I mean, like, you know, what else can we do? There's so many tweaks the students did and you know saw Kamiar and Brandon who were uh, mainly doing the experiments and still it did not work out and so then we took a step back and asked okay why is this the case so it turns out that if you're using these short tree depths with your TQN model it can be worse because you're not getting the negative experiences very well right so so think of it, the analogy I would give is like a helicopter parent, like, you know, not getting these kids to make mistakes, always like hovering around <laughs> the kids, right? Hovering about the kids and making sure they are okay and like kind of protecting them. So these short tree depth uh, Monte Carlo tree search is doing the same. Uh, let's say this uh, agent is near a fire where you know, if you went into the fire, you'd get killed, you'd get a very large negative reward. And that would happen with the DQN because there is no protection, but it would learn, okay, I should avoid the fire because I'll get killed. Mm -hmm. But if you have this Monte Carlo tree search, it'll look out a little bit into the future and realize, oh no, I shouldn't go to the fire because I will get killed, so I will avoid the fire, right? So it takes a long time just avoiding the fire, never getting killed, but not making good progress either. And that's why you need large tree depths because then you have a global view, right? And now then you can do really good decisions, but having this myopic short tree depth actually hurts you more than helps you. Are you planning to extend this based on the success that you had with the prediction part? Yeah, so I mean, certainly on the uh, simulation side, you know, how we can uh, s simulate the dynamics in different applications, you know, even real applications involving control systems uh, that we are very interested in. And also, you know, now the question is, how can we fix this, right? If it's not this classical Monte Carlo tree search with DQN, what are other reinforcement learning algorithms that could help us combine the model? based with the model-free reinforcement learning. Cool. So I think you had like seven papers. We've got through four of them. What else uh, What else have you found interesting this year? Yes. Uh, the other two are more, I would say, the applications of AI to the sciences. Um, okay. I think this is going to be, this has to be the future, right? We need to go and impact the scientific questions, you know, the very fundamental discoveries, uh, I think that's really important. And I'm happy to see two papers that I think have been great. Uh, one of them is called the phase link. It's a deep learning approach to seismic uh, phase association. And this is uh, 
from my colleague uh, Isong Yu at Caltech, who is also a machine learning professor and other seismic uh, researchers at Caltech. And uh, here the goal was to ask, can we link the unknown phases from different sensors for a common earthquake? Apparently, like these phases are not known, and this is something you need to do when you have so many different sensors that are trying to sense the same common earthquake. And in this case, it's challenging because you don't know the, you know, how many sources, like is it just one earthquake shudder or is it happening in different places? And these events could be happening frequently in time. So it's not just one shudder, but multiple ones and there's overlap. And uh, how do we disentangle all this well, right? And the challenge here was that there is little uh, real data, right? So, I mean, I think uh, at Caltech, we have the longest recordings of seismic activities, at least in the United States, um, goes back uh, almost a century. But this is still not enough if you want to come up with a, a very good model, and especially for deep learning, which is data hungry. So instead, what the researchers did was a simple and an effective approach where they simulated synthetic sequences. So there's something known as the P wave and the S wave. These are different kind of waves uh, in earthquakes. And so they simulated both these kinds. They Arrival times were generated using just a very simple one-dimensional velocity model. So no, this was nothing complicated. You know, we are always when we are generating synthetic data, we are worried: is this realistic enough? But what was surprising in this case was this uh, simple synthetic model, when tens of millions were sequences were used combined with real data, was very effective. And to me, the intuition is this is encoding all the physics of the waves in an effective way, right? So the basic physics is encoded well, and then with some amount of real data, any additional variations it's able to also capture. And, uh, you know, so to me, this is a good example of uh, going into a different field, understanding the problems in that domain well through the domain experts and, you know, coming up with the fairly simple machine learning solutions, but ha that have a big practical impact. I've certainly seen in my conversations with folks on the applied side that uh, they can accomplish a lot with uh, some fairly basic tools that uh, the, you know, ML and AI have provided. So, um, you know, with with deep learning, there are tons of applications that can dramatically simplify some of some of their previous workflows as researchers uh, that aren't particularly complex. That are you know fairly off the shelf applications of you know for example image classification or you know deep learning uh, classifiers or predictors. So, so I agree to the extent that the machine learning principle is simple, but at the same time, this required close collaboration between the machine learning expert and the domain experts, right? Like it's not a plug and play approach yet, and I believe in most applications it won't be, right? And just taking the standard deep learning, you usually don't have enough data and you have to see how to augment the data or how you should do semi-supervised learning well, and that's why 
you know, this is uh, usually requires close collaboration and not just the domain experts using some off the shelf machine learning tools. Uh, yeah, that's fair. And I think um, that, you know, there's often the, the, the challenges come up in uh, the the data side, getting enough labeled data or um, coming up with tricks to improve sample efficiency. Or I've also uh, talked to folks that have to kind of customize their objective functions to, to do interesting things. Um, but it's not like they're using, you know, exotic things like GANs very often at this point. That's right. And I would always suggest people to start with the simplest things. You know, I was in this mentoring session with for reinforcement learning. The topic was reinforcement learning. And there were many people coming from the applied side and asking when they should use reinforcement learning. And my answer was only when someone puts a gun to your head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you run out of everything else and there is no nothing else that works, then try reinforcement learning. Because reinforcement learning is expensive, right? So mm -hmm. first, you want to ask, you know, how much of knowledge do I already have? What kind of pre-trained models are effective? And, uh, you know, do I really need to explore here or do I have enough data to begin with? I mean, these are all things you want to think about rather than blindly applying reinforcement learning. Uh, and you mentioned the next paper on your list is is kind of in a similar vein, uh, uh, an application on the science side? That's right. And also on the system side. So this is the paper on exascale deep learning for climate analytics. And this won the Gordon Bell Prize this year at the supercomputing conference. And to me, this is very exciting because for the first time, this broke the exa ops barrier. Right. So to me, it's mind boggling the scale of computations we are able to do now. This had the scaling up to 27,000 GPUs, and this is on the new Summit supercomputer. And uh, traditionally, supercomputing has been very CPU based, and now uh, taking this to the next level with GPUs is very exciting. And the other question is now what kinds of applications can we do on the supercomputing? Traditionally, it has been HPC, you know, kind of climate modeling. So there are like, you know, these known climate models and how do we simulate this, right? But in this case, the unique thing was to combine those HPC models with deep learning uh, architectures, uh, specifically they applied segmentation architectures to climate data sets and they achieved state-of-the-art weather pattern masks and uh, they had both the FP16 cores and the traditional HPC operations, right? So this kind of mixed precision and mixed operations of both uh, HPC and deep learning together, I think, will be the future in the sciences. Yeah, it's interesting. It's my understanding from conversations that for uh, quite a long time, Maybe, I don't know if it's machine learning or uh, GPU-based architectures weren't really uh, appreciated in the supercomputing community. And uh, for example, I think the anecdote that I heard was that that was really the reason why uh, Jensen and NVIDIA created GTC because they couldn't, you know, the, the researchers that were working on GPUs couldn't get any papers uh, accepted at supercomputing. 
um, you know, uh, that community is hard to break into. <laughs> uh, there are so many other, I can go into the sociological factors, right? And that's because, you know, they are in the big labs, the big national labs, and uh, the people who trained on those traditional supercomputing for decades and they don't want to move away. So I still see these issues, but this is where uh, we need, like, especially the younger people to say, like, okay, no, there is so many new developments that this is inevitable, right? Like we have mm-hmm. to move away from those traditional supercomputing. And same with machine learning. They, you know, demanded these high precision operations, uh, you know, 64-bit operations, right? And that's like, no, in machine learning, everything is 32 bits or lower. And that's because what... Um, you know, in machine learning, the idea is uh, what we are computing anyway is inherently uncertain and we don't need high precision. Whereas in traditional HPC, uh, the idea is no, we'll precisely maintain the uncertainty quantification. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, this is super important, right? There are certainly cases where this is needed. But in many others, the model itself they're using has a big mismatch, right? Like if you're using a linear model and you want this high precision, you could argue, is this really needed? And so what I believe is we should revisit and ask, when do we need these very high precision computations? And are there other parts of the pipeline where we could relax that? So maybe let's switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit uh, about your kind of your predictions for... Uh, 2019 and more broadly the the near future in machine learning and AI and in particular I'm, I want to start with you know what are you most excited about when you kind of think about uh, where we are today all that you know we've accomplished in 2018 the, you know the struggles of 2018 that you're intimately familiar with uh, you know what what are you most uh, excited about? going forward or looking forward? Yeah, I think uh, 2019 uh, will be a great year uh, for really expanding the horizons and the way we think of machine learning, right? Uh, I think there'll be hopefully less of leaderboard chasing and myopic gains in uh, deep learning and more... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now I'm serious and more of a holistic approach and integration with the other sciences, with the humanities in a stronger way, uh, you know, going beyond standard supervised learning. You know, we uh, know very well that uh, the, uh, you know, uh, scenarios where the trained machine learning models are used will differ so much from the training data. Can we come up with new frameworks to you know, detect these domain shifts, you know, especially in safety critical applications, can we come up with ways to learn online, you know, as we are getting this uh, new non-stationary data, right? Can we do lifelong learning and never-ending learning and keep getting new knowledge? Uh, and when we go to these new domains, can we infuse that domain knowledge? For instance, can we ask what is the knowledge of physics we can already build in if especially we want to do learning on our robots or drones? You know, there's so much that's already uh, the control people have developed, right? We can't throw all that away. There is no way. Instead, the, you know, the question of do we bring in learning in a principled way, because for control systems, for instance, you want stability. You cannot 
throw that away, right? Whereas mm-hmm. neural networks by themselves are not stable. How do we enable that? Uh, and we had some initial work this year on uh, enabling a stable landing of drones with stability guarantees. So those kinds of collaborations across different expertise and different groups, that's what I hope to see more in 2019. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned one of the papers that you highlighted was uh, reinforcement learning. And of course, you, your comment about it being a, a tool of last resort. Do you expect to see uh, that change much in 2019? How close do you think we are to uh, the point where RL becomes a a uh, useful kind of general purpose tool for folks not in the research community? I like that, Sam, how you, you know, put me at a spot because, I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes, I work in reinforcement learning to clarify, you know, I have a great student on the market, Kamiar Azizade, who has uh, done amazing reinforcement learning work. And we certainly should do the principled approaches ask what would reinforcement learning do in different scenarios what are the algorithms and how can we analyze them and when it comes to the practical setting my comment was don't blindly apply right is it what you need here is it reinforcement learning and to me some of the most interesting work will be in the robotics uh, side so i talked about my caltech project uh, for uh, landing of drones and autonomous flying of drones so this is where we need the domain experts but we also need precise measurements so in this case in the cast facility there we have a unique wind testing facility for drones where we have 1300 programmable fans that can generate all kinds of wind conditions and we can get precise data on how the drone would react right so now armed with this data we can ask what kinds of reinforcement learning and machine learning we can do very well uh, because without this you know there is no a hope of uh, trying to improve uh, these systems. And so data collection is important. And when you have less of this real data, that's when we need very physically precise simulations. And this is where at NVIDIA, I believe we have this unique uh, capabilities to do simulations extremely well. Uh, So there are two frameworks. There is Flex and Physics. Physics is a framework, uh, we made it open source recently, earlier this week here at NeurIPS, which uh, is uh, simulating real world physical behavior very precisely, right? Like think about how if you have a damage to a building or you have like movement of the cloth, they have, how do we make them realistic? And Flex is a system that is uh, also, uh, you know, high fidelity GPU based physics simulator, and it simulates uh, uh, these uh, rigid body dynamics very well. And uh, Dito Fox uh, at uh, NVIDIA and uh, his group has been using Flex very effectively to close the gap from simulation to real. So the main idea is you may not even know what to simulate in the simulations, right? You need the real world experience rather than trying to manually tune what to simulate, what they're doing now is doing a little bit of a real world rollout and based on that experience, learning what to simulate next. And so going back, 
back and forth between simulation and reality. And I believe in 2019, we'll see a lot more of such sim to real applications and that'll lead to more uh, realistic uh, robotic impact, uh, more realistic impact in robotics. Do you have some specific predictions for kind of what you expect to see in, in your area and in ML more broadly in the next uh, year or so? Uh, so the main one is moving beyond just supervised learning, right? Okay. So semi-supervised learning, uh, asking what are the relevant generative modeling? How do I capture uncertainty in a relevant way? You know, the Bayesian neural networks, how do I design them in the right way? And through that, how do I do better active learning? How do I do domain adaptation better? Uh, how do I scale up the algorithms while understanding these trade-offs between systems and machine learning? I think we'll see a lot more of those kind of interdisciplinary uh, questions as well as the core machine learning questions. Uh, so any parting thoughts before we finish up? No, I think uh, I should say like 2018 has uh, been personally a challenging year because, you know, I have had, uh, I think, the time to introspect more on the societal impacts of uh, uh, machine learning and uh, how we can improve diversity and inclusion in machine learning. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the year is now ending in a good note, uh, especially at NeurIPS, as I'm seeing so much overwhelming support. And hopefully we can improve that. And with that, uh, come up with new creative approaches to machine learning. Hopefully less of the media hype, more of <laughs> more of serious podcasts such as what I'm doing right now. And, <laughs> uh, and yeah, and I've been very vocal in uh, dispelling some of the hype and the myths, and I hope to continue to do that. Fantastic. Well, Anima, thank you so much for uh, all of your work in the space and for taking the time to uh, chat with us about it. Thanks a lot, Sam. This is a pleasure. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.